Hey everyone. The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck had a groundbreaking premise. What if a road trip story didn't skip any part of the road trip? <laughs> I'm Kellett Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and luckily, not corn in Oklahoma 90 years ago. <laughs> And I'm David Vance. My favorite review of this book says, sure, there's a lot of symbolism and meaning behind it, but the entertainment value of it is nothing. <laughs> the Grapes of Wrath is a classic novel about the plight of migrant Oklahoman farmers during the Dust Bowl. No one has ever read it on purpose. Buckle up, Dave and I are going to disagree on this one. <laughs> and this is The Book Pile. I love, I love how you came out of the gate with, just like me... Everyone hates this book. <laughs> the key to a fight is to strike early. <laughs> Quick reminder to please rate and review the book pile, because every review that comes in, we think, maybe this is the one that will make me happy. <laughs> MKK99912DD. Did we get hacked? <laughs> For sure. They, they just put all of that down in hopes that I would read it verbatim. It's either a made-up reviewer name or Elon Musk's baby. <laughs> That's a pretty good topical joke. I've listened to every episode twice now. That's how entertaining these guys are. It's a great blend of humor and intellect. Keep up the good work. Also, the theme song is so good. Dave is certainly multi-talented. <laughs> That's very nice of you. But there's three exclamation marks, which I always read as sarcastic. So... <laughs> Are you now doubting my compliments? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. No, my, my pessimism isn't just for me. <laughs> Mr. Joshua says, The majority of my friends work in classical education, so they've probably read all of Jane Austen's novels. Now I can chime into the conversation with some jokes. And I believe he hasn't read them because he misspelled Austen. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that he eavesdrops and then just interrupts a conversation about like Pride and Prejudice with full confidence. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. You know, Jane Austen never got married, right? <laughs> what a loser. Where's the punch? <laughs> Finally, our next two books are Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey and Gone Girl. If you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Alaska, April 20th through the 23rd. Before, previously, I said I was going to be in Fairbanks, but I'm actually going to be in North Pole, Alaska, the 20th and 21st, and then Fairbanks, the 22nd and 23rd. And Wait, uh, there's really a North Pole, Alaska? There really is. If there is any, like, a city with more false advertising. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at a compass. <laughs> I would love it if they had the excuse of like, you know, there's like 19 different cities called Lincoln. <laughs> and then I'm going to be at the Comedy Vault in Batavia, is that how you say it? Illinois, April 28th through the 30th. Go to kellenerskin.com for all of those tickets. Do you think the actual North Pole is litigious? I think it's just all melted at this point. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and without further ado... Here are six lessons that we took from The Grapes of Wrath. All right, lesson one. When you call someone a name, you stop paying any attention to whether they have something to say. <laughs> In this book, the workers are like, hey, our kids are starving, so maybe we should make more than two and a half cents. And the bosses are like, you communist. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's the whole lesson. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson two, a good story can introduce new ideas that promote sympathy. I had to decide between sympathy or empathy, but I think a decent story can make you feel bad for someone, but a well-crafted story can make you feel what they're going through. And yes, Dave, I know this book was a slow crawl, but so was trying to live in Oklahoma during the worst drought in history. Um, I do feel like before I move on, you and I need to have a quick conversation about our different experiences with this book. Yeah, so I, I enjoyed the final third of it. There's that part at like the two-thirds mark where he attacks the corrupt deputy. And from that point on, it felt like he was like, oh, oh yeah, uh, something should happen. <laughs> there should be like a story. Up until that point, for me, it was one of the more boring books I've read. For me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because you're like, you're like the old dad watching a movie. And then halfway through it, you're like, oh, okay, good. Finally, something exploded. <laughs> now I'm into it. <laughs> I just think it's so funny, and obviously art is subjective, but I it's it's funny to me how with our last episode you complimented Carlo Rivelli on how beautiful his prose was in Helgoland because he said like two nice things about electrons, but then, <laughs> then you you read like the number one great American novel with to me that has like some of the most evocative description of the twentieth century and you're like boring. <laughs> Should have talked more about uh, quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought the first two thirds, it felt like it had no real characters, like very little plot to the point where it's like describing anytime they stop at a gas station, anytime someone needs to pee on the side of the road. I agree. There aren't like compelling characters, like no one is dressing up as Pa from Grapes of Wrath for Halloween. <laughs> But to me, the biggest... What a good idea. The, <laughs> you just cough dust in everyone's face. Trick or treat. Please. I am so hungry. <laughs> to me, the biggest character of the first half of the book is Oklahoma. And that's that's what's established. But I'll I'll bring that up in my my next bit. So, but as far as like sympathy goes, there are I, these ideas to me that encourage sympathy for a circumstance that I've never been in, and things that I never would have thought of, such as like the idea of when you can't take everything, what do you leave behind? That's something I've never considered. I hate moving just because of all the stuff. Like, I always feel like I'm getting rid of stuff, but then when I move, I just still have three million things. But at this time, Mm -hmm. like, I never considered that at that time, people didn't just have access to the Goodwill or trash cans or the dumpster of a grocery store, which is illegal, so would everyone just stop leaving your nasty couches there? I hate, I hate the forethought. How do you know there aren't just people who like hanging out by dumpsters? (laughs) And when people take it because they think it's a donation, they show up at their favorite hangout spot like, what the? (laughs) Again? (laughs) But at this time, uh, when people were leaving uh, Oklahoma, they just piled up what they couldn't pack and burned it as they drove away, which I believe is also a chapter in Marie Kondo's book. (laughs) Again, the the heartbreak of... Sorry, can I say something really fast? Yeah. Hearing you talk about these themes and ideas, I am more interested than I was for the entire two-thirds of the book. (laughs) (laughs) We should have had this talk ahead of time. I think an abridged version of Grapes of Wrath would have hit way harder for me because I wouldn't have been resenting what it was putting me through. 
John Steinbeck realized that the best way to make you feel the suffering of the poor is to make the book so boring that you also suffer. <laughs> right here, I'm going to throw in that soundbite of Gaston when he's like, how could you read this? There's no pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think the difference is the context behind it too is, is I've I've been such like a student of writing in general that when I, I read this book initially in my 20s, I just appreciated so much how well he crafts sentences. So that's a lot of the ride for me is just his, his style and his ability to uh, evoke what's happening, even though in all fairness, a lot of it is dull, but he's so good at telling you. <laughs> how dull it was. That's how I see it. Can I observe something? Yeah. I've noticed that now a couple of times when something is strong on prose but light on plot, you are there for it and I am not. Is that a fair split? That's true. I think that's how he felt about something wicked this way comes. Yeah. Because I'm like, when is it going to get here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a prose half full sort of guy. <laughs> Every book has pros and cons. <laughs> you can't cut that joke. <laughs> So speaking of prose and the um, creating this empathy within the reader of, of what this was like and leaving even a terrible place just because you grew up there. I love this quote when he's talking about someone who's pondering on this willow tree that's in the, the front yard of the house they grew up in. Can you live without that willow tree? No, you can't. That willow tree is you. Hmm. Another thing that I found fascinating was the fact that like, Route 66 was not like a fun road trip. (laughs) It was not. Now it's like fun because of like the movie Cars and like there's iconic signs for your Instagram and ironic diners. But at the time, Route 66, it was just the only way to cross a desert. (laughs) This was not like life is a highway. It was more like. Please don't break down so that we die. Please. (laughs) You know what's weird is I probably would have liked a history book about the Dust Bowl way more because it would have been like, here's the important thing to know, and now we can move on. (laughs) But then you wouldn't have had a great quote like this, which again, I love that it sort of inserts you inside a situation that you've probably never been in before. He says, quote, how can you frighten a man whose hunger is not only his own cramped stomach, but in the wretched bellies of his children, you can't scare him. He has known a fear beyond every other. Wow. And it's like, yeah, but Steinbeck has obviously never seen the movie The Ring. Because <laughs> that's pretty dang scary, too. <laughs> so my, my takeaway here is that I think, really, this book should have been called The Wrath of Oklahoma. <laughs> All right, lesson three. You don't always have to learn the boring way. So obviously this point depends on you agreeing with me that this book is boring. <laughs> Sorry. I can see I can see Kellen is gonna have a different take. <laughs> but I did I did do a little bit of homework before prepping this point. I called a couple other people who had to read it back in high school just to ask their responses and uh more people well, everyone aligned with me also. <laughs> I'll lay it out. I learned reading this book that they had so little money in the Great Depression that they couldn't afford any good plot or characters. <laughs> On the Wikipedia page, it's called a realist novel because you know how real life is so boring. <laughs> 
Hold on. I know you've got a, a, a slew of other home runs to get to, but do you not do you not agree that living four years after the market crash during an era of dust storms when there was no TV that maybe life was a little dull? Oh, I agree that it's dull, but at the same time, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird happens in a poor town during hard times, and she makes it very interesting because she knows we're not looking for more dole. That's fair. But she went to school and stuff. These are just farmers. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm dunking on the slow parts of the book so I, I can make an actual point about learning. I think if our goal is to get kids excited about learning about the Dust Bowl— I think this book is one of our worst methods because <laughs> for me, it's like when we want kids to be excited about piano lessons. So we force them to play classical pieces that they hate because no kid is like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to play some Bach. <laughs> like I, I was going to quit piano as a kid till my mom said I could pick what songs I learned. And now I love it and I play all the time. And I, I say this because sometimes I feel like there are two philosophies about learning, where one is learning is a duty and it's hard and you do things because they're classics. And that's why you have to read The House of Seven Gables and learn these Baroque pieces you hate. Whereas another philosophy feels like learning is, is fun and interesting and useful and memorable. And if it's none of those things for you, why do it? Mm -hmm. And I, I just resonate with that philosophy so much more. Mm -hmm. And so if I were a teacher deciding whether to make my kids read Grapes of Wrath, I'd say, okay, what's the goal? Is it to teach them about the Dust Bowl? Is it to teach them about literary themes? And whatever the goal is, is there no more interesting way to achieve it? <laughs> One of my favorite history teachers growing up was my mom because she was just so excited about everything she told you. I realize this point is uh, more ranty than I planned. <laughs> oh, no, I can throw in some sound effects. So, <laughs> so where I agree with you is that I don't think that most books that are recommended for high school students should be on that list because I think books like this, they resonate more once you've had more life experience. It's one of the reasons why this spoke to <laughs> you me. You pulling the age card on me? Well, no. <laughs> I'm just saying that there are, there are themes in this that hit harder with me in my late 20s because I had you know, you go through these things of do we move or do we not? And, and what do you do with your stuff and your kids? And is it going to be any better? And when you're a teenager, I can see how that could be very uninteresting. And first impressions are so <laughs> powerful that I don't know that I would have only gone to people who first read this in high school. I'm sure I would have hated it the same way that I wasn't into, uh, you know, Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> to me, it's much more than just learning about the Dust Bowl. It's also, uh, I think it has evergreen themes of what it's like to be a, a migrant worker from any place and uh, the, the uh, you know, oppression, the unwarranted stigma. There, there are a lot of other themes in here to me than just like a, a weather event a century ago. <laughs> I actually agree with all those last things you just said, which for me, I think were mostly in the final third of the book, which was the part that I liked. I also understand in trying to defend certain things that this is like trying to convince someone that a song is good. <laughs> <laughs> like, I fully get that. Oh, one time I was opening for this comic and he took me on the road for like a week and he made me listen to a full album by Mumford and Sons. <laughs> and if you're not into that, it's... <laughs> 
I love those moments when your very first taste tells you that it's not going to be your thing, but it's a long experience. <laughs> like when you show up on a first date and within five seconds, you know you're not interested, but now you're committed to this date. <laughs> so ironically, speaking of Bach, I mentioned before that my favorite cello song of all time is the Sweden G. Am I just accidentally crapping on everything you care about today? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I just think it's fascinating that you're the smart one in our duo if you read all of our <laughs> reviews. But it's so funny that like literally back to back with these last two episodes, we find that I'm into Steinbeck and Bach and you're into Harry <laughs> Potter and Star Wars. Um <laughs> So, I actually, I do love the unaccompanied cello Bach piece. Uh, okay, you, you can try and climb your way up to my level. <laughs> <laughs> and recover this brand. <laughs> On that subject of whether learning should be boring or exciting, my friend Gregory is a lawyer, and he says part of the reason lawyers get paid highly is to compensate them for doing incredibly boring work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lesson four. Sometimes creating a world just means describing a part of our own. So to me, even though this book takes place in essentially just two towns and the road between them, it feels as immense as a whole world. And I know, Dave, you're dying to interrupt with how immensely bored you were. But <laughs> just, just let me reach a few of our more patient readers. To me, Steinbeck achieves an IMAX widescreen view of Oklahoma. Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> You're stealing my jokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's such a better derogatory way to call someone from. <laughs> better than calling them Oki. <laughs> <laughs> Great, it's some Oklahomlies. <laughs> He just he just manages to give us this this widescreen view of when these terrible stars aligned of both the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Like it was it was a miserable place during a miserable time. And like I wouldn't have been surprised at one point right after a dust storm like kills a whole field if one of the characters was like, Could this get any worse? And then like a zombie's <laughs> hand emerges from the ground. <laughs> You know someone was like, I'm sure the early 1940s will be better. <laughs> <laughs> so, just like Dave, I enjoy how he sets up the first half of the book. Where <laughs> every other chapter has nothing to do with the ongoing narrative and everything to do just with revealing more of the world that they live in. It's like a curtain that's being drawn back incrementally. Or like pants slowly being taken off. You know what the word reveal means. <laughs> so again, to me, it's just sort of every other chapter is just sort of this establishing shot of where we are. And that's where I argue that when you say nothing is happening. It is that like the story isn't moving forward, but it's just more <laughs> and more of this universe is is being shown, which to me provides more the context of how desperate the people were in the last third of the book. 
So, for example, there's a chapter that's just a short story about a turtle trying to cross a dusty road. Sounds like a Pixar short. Uh, there's another chapter that takes place on a used car lot where a salesman is trying to monetize the exodus of the Dust Bowl, which, again, is like another thing that I hadn't considered. The fact that like some people are trying to leave town to survive and other people are just trying to take as much as they can from the people leaving <laughs> I would have loved to have been a vacuum salesman. <laughs> <laughs> There's a chapter about like the collective feeling of how trapped everyone is in the cycle of agriculture when you're subject to weather in the banks. But the first chapter is one of my favorite first chapters of all time. My other one being the first chapter of Les Miserables, because that's all I've read of it. <laughs> The first chapter of Les Mis spends like an hour setting up this bishop character who you never see again. <laughs> it's like Les Miserables is the only book that's named after everyone who reads it. <laughs> but the first chapter of Grapes of Wrath, it's, it's masterfully written. It describes the beginning of the drought without ever using the word drought and with the innovative pacing of a time lapse. So... I just want to read a little bit of it. The last rain lifted the corn quickly. The gray country and the red country began to disappear beneath a green cover. The sun flared down on the growing corn day after day until a line of brown spread along the edge of each green bayonet. The clouds appeared and went away, and in a while they didn't try anymore. As the sky became pale, so the earth became pale." Again, the craft from here comes from the fact that he is describing several months, you know, in about seven sentences without once, like, if I were to do this, it would say something like, it rained really hard and the corn grew. Two and a half months later, <laughs> the sun was very hot. Tom Joad was an unusual man in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bright and droughty day. <laughs> It was the dust of times. It was the bowl of times. <laughs> Call me grape. <laughs> and then there's this part where he's describing this man versus machine moment during this time uh, in American agriculture. Quote, Turning his plow point for a stone, kneeling in the earth to eat his lunch, that man who is more than his elements knows the land. But the machine man driving a dead tractor on land he does not know and does not love, when the corrugated iron doors are shut, he goes home, and the land is not his home. Doesn't it follow up by saying, that man hates the tractor and himself? Yes, that's basically what he says there. Um, if I were a tractor driver reading that, I'd be like, hey! <laughs> But this is this is less about like stereotyping every uh, every tractor driver as someone who deals with self-loathing, and I'll, I'll get to it more in uh, the random facts as to why the the demonization of tractors at this time mattered so much. But personally, I just I love this these faceless descriptions he gives here of these two different men and the worse one who is clearly outpacing the other, but also. I don't think it's necessary to love your job. That's one part where I don't completely agree with. Like sometimes a job just pays well, right? Or it's all that you know. Like this wouldn't resonate with me if it was like, but the garbage man hanging on the truck that he does not adore goes home and the dump is not his home. 
Yeah, it's like if you have four hungry kids, you don't get to be like, but is this my passion? <laughs> Sometimes your passion is your kids eating. Yeah. Yeah. Don't high road me just because you're a farmer who can only afford a shovel. <laughs> All right. Lesson five. History books make things seem predictable and permanent when at the time they were incredibly surprising. When something happened a long time ago and we read about it as like just a fact, I think we overlook how shocking it was. So you read about the Dust Bowl in school and it's like, yeah, there was, there was dust and farmers had to move. But you actually imagine it like in this book where you're a farmer, your whole life is out there in that field. And then one day everything dies because the sky rains dirt. <laughs> like what kind of Moses plague? And in just an instant, your life and everyone's life is ruined. Mm. History books always make the past seem so tidy and explainable. Amos Tversky said, We find ourselves unable to predict what will happen. Yet after the fact, we explain what did happen with a great deal of confidence. It leads us to believe that there is a less uncertain world than there actually is. He also said, He who sees the past as surprise-free is bound to have a future full of surprises. <laughs> That's from the book The Undoing Project, which I recommended to like four friends who all hated it. <laughs> It's one of my all-time favorite books, and no one will like it with me. <laughs> <laughs> now you know how I feel today. <laughs> I actually do want to poll. I want to poll the audience. Tell us your thoughts on Grapes of Wrath in a review. <laughs> <laughs> also, tell us the age you were when you first read it. And then lesson six. Some people are free market only when it suits them. The bosses in this book think of themselves as free market business types, because you know how in the free market, when someone goes on strike, you're allowed to kill them? <laughs> I think we see a lot of people who are free market today, unless they have access to a real nice subsidy. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and the reverse is also true. Like Steinbeck, this whole book talks about how much he hates businessmen and rich people. And I'm like, it's so cool, John, that you write your books for free. <laughs> like, he, he knows we know he's rich, right? <laughs> It also works the other way around when people are like, oh, I hate socialism. And then they get a check during the pandemic for $7,000 and they're like, okay, I mean, but I still don't like it. <laughs> All right, random facts. Kellen, do you think book characters ever realize, uh-oh, the author's trying to make a political point, so I'm going to suffer? <laughs> <laughs> like, who's writing this? Toni Morrison? Crap. <laughs> The Jungle is about how bad Chicago was. So the protagonist must know, like, oh, I'm going to experience every bad thing you can in Chicago. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of the book is probably the only truly funny part, is that he describes them having to travel to, like, Barstow and then to Bakersfield. And then uh, the dad says, wait till we get to California. You'll see nice country then. <laughs> the son's like, dad, this is California. <laughs> uh, 
This is funny to me because we talked before about how California is so massive. It is funny that we sort of have this. I think even now people have this idea that once you cross the state line, you're like, why doesn't anything look different? Because it really is like California is basically Nevada for like a hundred miles, you know, (laughs) until you finally Uh get to these mountains. Yeah, every time the family was talking about how perfect California would be and being a fruit picker is such an easy life, through my head was running, there are no cats in America. (laughs) (laughs) There's this quote from Calvin Coolidge that reminds me of this book. He said... Well, farmers never have made money. I don't believe we can do much about it. But of course, we will have to seem to be doing something. Do the best you can without much hope. (laughs) So at the beginning of the book, one of the characters, um, he hops out of a car that he's just hitchhiked in, and he says to the driver, homicide, that's a big word, means I killed a guy. That's how he leaves. <laughs> and I just I think I'm going to try that the next time I exit an Uber. <laughs> My favorite character in Grapes of Wrath is the preacher. Because even though he was a preacher, he couldn't stop himself from being lustful. <laughs> so he decides, oh, there must be no such thing as good and evil. <laughs> so listeners, feel free to use that line anytime you screw up too. <laughs> It's the preacher from Hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) I also loved how all he wanted was for people to stop calling him a preacher, and they would not stop (laughs) calling him a preacher. (laughs) So again, I always recommend reading classics, just the paper books. But one really cool benefit of listening to this book is a 45-second harmonica solo between every (laughs) chapter. What's so funny, too, is that the harmonica is just wailing. So there's one chapter that ends with this little boy who dies and his parents are grieving. And the narrator says, hopefully there will be a day when the good people aren't all poor. And then, wah, wah, wah. Wah, 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 wah. It doesn't make any sense either, because the only <laughs> instrument you're going to play is the guitar <laughs> during a dust storm. You're not going to go like, where's my breath flute? <laughs> Tom Joad is on parole in this book. And the terms of parole are kind of a self-own. Because it's like, all right, your punishment is you have to stay in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you're worried someone's going to reoffend, don't you want them out of your state? <laughs> It may have been just because I was hungry when I listened to part of it, but the poor food sounds so much better than the wealthy person food. So <laughs> when he's describing these like big campouts that everyone would have along the road on the way to California, he says, pork and potatoes and onions, Dutch oven biscuits or cornbread, and plenty of gravy to go over it. Dough fried crisp and drippings poured hot over it. If the money was slim. That's what he's saying about all this stuff. If the money was slim. Then he goes, those families that were very rich ate canned beans and canned peaches and packaged bread. And it's like, what? 
<laughs> I'm sure it seemed fancy at the time, but isn't it funny how the tables have turned? Because nowadays, yeah. if you went to someone's house for dinner and the entire meal was canned, you'd be like, oh, was this given to you by like the Second Harvest Food Bank? <laughs> Like, are you guys doing okay? Yes, we would both have that reaction. <laughs> we both cook. <laughs> I don't cook, but I'm just saying, Dave, if you were standing there and you had the choice between, like, mashed potatoes and Dutch oven biscuits or pork and beans, like, would you really, like, pick up the can, twirl it in the air to yourself and be like, sorry, just rich person food for me today. <laughs> I had the thought reading this that I've never seen a road trip movie where several members of the road trip die. <laughs> but then I realized Lord of the Rings is a road trip movie. <laughs> <laughs> Only in this one, Grandma doesn't show up again to fight off the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> Grandma the White. <laughs> oh, that was... Definitely this grandma's nickname. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from The Grapes of Wrath. One, a good story can introduce new ideas that promote sympathy. Two, you don't always have to learn the boring way. (laughs) Fundamental tension between those two lessons. (laughs) Three, sometimes creating a world just means describing our own. Four, history books make things seem predictable and permanent when at the time they were incredibly surprising. Five, when you call someone a name, you stop paying any attention to whether they have something to say. Six, some people are free market only when it suits them. And seven, podcast hosts always agree with each other. Oh, you weren't lying about that panhandle.